Today's reading is Psalm 6 on page 545. Psalm 6 and page 545 in the Church Bibles. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from his grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all you who do evil. For the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. Good morning. It's a joy to be able to share from God's Word uh, again this morning in this uh, series from Psalms, and thank you for reading that uh, uh, so well, Gifty. I'm certainly going to need um, the Lord's help this morning, so uh, I'm going to just briefly pray. Show us Christ and reveal the mystery of the cross. Lord, we pray that uh, as we study your Word together, that you would show us uh, our Lord Jesus and help us to love him more for your name's sake. Amen. Well, this series has been uh, a bit of an emotional journey because David is on an emotional journey through uh, each of these uh, psalms of uh, lament. And so we're going to go to three quite difficult places uh, in our journey through this psalm, but I can assure you that we will end up uh, in a place of certain hope. But we begin with a cry of anguish in verses 1 to 3. A few weeks ago, I heard a heart-rending interview on Radio 4 with the journalist Mero Mills about the agonizing death of her 14-year-old daughter, Martha, in hospital some years previously. And you could still hear the anguish in her voice as if it had just happened. Not simply because her daughter had died, but because the mother's pleas to the medical staff to send her daughter to intensive care because the mother herself had diagnosed correctly she had severe sepsis, went totally unheeded. And her daughter could have been saved if the doctors had taken her pleas seriously. Time was crucial to save her daughter, but it was a bank holiday, a bank holiday Monday, and the consultant was evidently in holiday mode and left it too late before he finally came in the next day. Now, you can sense the same kind of urgency that Marope Mills had in pleading for her daughter in the first section of this psalm in verses 1 to 3. My soul is in deep anguish, verse 3 
My bones are in agony, verse 2. And then it terminates in this incomplete but anguished cry of how long, O Lord, how long? Now, we don't know in this psalm the specific cause of David's pain, but it's gone on for such a long time that he yearns to be free of it. And there are times when God's silence and his apparent lack of concern seem to us totally inexplicable and at times unbearable. And in a congregation of this size this morning or amongst those listening online or on the recording, some of you will know that for many, many years in your own heart there has been that cry of how long, O Lord. And we get a sense of this even in the ministry of Jesus himself, and certainly here more than a hint of it in John's account of Mary's lament to Christ when he seemingly also arrives too late. And she says to him, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Not being aware, of course, at the time that the Lord Jesus had a plan for Lazarus, her brother, beyond healing that she could not see. And David is struggling to see here. And the first point that I want to uh, make from this uh, psalm this morning is that this is all a part of a life lived with God, as we are seeing repeatedly in this sermon series. And there was a time in my life when I was... um, involved in a church that was very much along the lines of um, prosperity teaching. And if there are some of you here this morning who have been influenced by that, I can say that I can see the attraction of it, Um, particularly, uh, it's it's a morning about hearing how how we met our wives. Uh, 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 There was an attractive girl in that uh, church that uh, I, I was rather keen on. However, I had to uh, lay that element of of things uh, aside eventually because actually both she and I came to realize that it was not founded on a strong basis of, of biblical truth. And the truth is that we only have to live long enough and we will suffer. I'm aware that there are the YPs in with us this morning and when you're young that may seem very, very distant. But there will be a day when you will recall this, uh, just, as, just a few years after uh, we left that particular church. Um, I, in my 20s, came face to face with uh, a darkness that uh, I never thought that I would ever encounter amidst the praise and worship of those exuberant meetings. In the chapter entitled Pain, in Dane Ortland's challenging book, Deeper, he writes something really, really important about this, and I can't recommend this book too highly. It'll break you, but also encourage you. No Christian, no matter where he or she lives, is immune to the painful experiences of cancer, betrayal by fellow Christians, vocational disappointment, psychological disorders, emotional meltdowns, wayward children, abusive bosses, or a hundred other adversities. 
And Ortland is absolutely right about this. This is the normal pattern of the Christian life here on earth. And so we see that David here in this psalm was physically in pain. My bones are in agony and spiritually distressed. And these two often go together in a time of crisis. Our physical symptoms often lead to anxiety and mental stress, often leads to physical symptoms. And it's interesting that in the Old Testament, the word for soul here is often translated as uh, person, i.e. the whole of our being, body and soul, as we sometimes say. We are a, a unity. And David is also aware here that his present situation might be a sign of God's anger in verse 1. But he doesn't want that to be the reason for God's rebuke or his discipline. Do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. And whilst it's very easy to get into that way of thinking when things go wrong, and certainly God's wrath is something that the Bible does clearly speak about, the whole emphasis of Scripture is that the Lord our God is slow to anger and rich in mercy. And in Numbers 14, God reveals himself in verse 18 as the Lord who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving sin and rebellion. And Proverbs 3, verses 11 to 12, tell us, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciples those that disciplines those that he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. So he disciplines his disciples. And that verse is quoted and expanded on in the New Testament where the writer to Hebrews encourages us to endure discipline because God is treating you as his children and what children are not disciplined by their father. Chapter 12, verse 7. However, he does add in verse 11 that no discipline seems present at the time, but painful. And it is incredibly painful, just as it is here for David in this psalm. So it's no wonder that in the next two verses, we come to a plea for deliverance in verses 4 to 5. David pleads with God to turn and save him because of God's unfailing love. And the Hebrew word here is hesed, H-E-S-E-D, and it's such a great one to know um, and to understand because it has such a rich variety of meanings in the Old Testament and crops up again and again with multiple translations in our English Bibles, such as steadfast loving kindness, mercy, and as in our church Bibles, unfailing love. A second quote, I hope you'll forgive me from Auckland's deeper this time from the chapter entitled Embrace, gives us a wonderful illustration of what Hesed is all about. Whether the wreckage of your own life is your own doing or that of someone else, you who are in Christ have never stepped out of the cascading waterfall of divine love. You cannot stop the flow 
any more than a single pebble can slow Victoria Falls, a mile across and 360 feet high, as those millions of gallons of the Zambezi come crashing down over the cliffs in Zambia. What a lovely imagery there. And David is well aware that if God does not show him loving kindness, then he may well end up dead at the hand of his enemies, which is why in verse 5, I think, he speaks of uh, being among the dead. And in the Old Testament, though there are hints here and there of a life after death, the main emphasis is on relating to God in the here and now, because that is what Israel as a nation was called to do. As God's covenant people, they were to be his witnesses to the other nations. And so there is relatively little mention or or assurance of what will happen in the next world. And this is why David quite rightly asks in verse 5, who praises you from the grave? But the Old Testament does also give some indication that those whose trust was in Jehovah would not remain in the grave forever. In Psalm 49, verses 14 and 15, for example, the psalmist there contrasts the fate of those who trust in themselves with those who have put their trust in the Lord God. Their forms will decay in the grave far from their princely mansions, But God will redeem me from the dead. He will surely take me to himself. And again in Psalm 71 verse 20, the anonymous writer there declares, Who is like you, God? Though you have made me see many troubles, many and bitter, you will restore my life again from the depths of the earth. You will raise me up. And the depths of the earth are a regular Old Testament metaphor for the grave, particularly in the Psalms. And even in the light of New Testament teaching, with its clear promise of resurrection from the dead, David is quite right in his questioning. We will certainly praise God for sure in heaven uh, and in resurrection life, what praise that will be. But we certainly will not praise him from the grave itself. And the emphasis on the psalm is rightly on relating to God in this life and knowing his deliverance here and now. And as one online Bible blogger on this psalm neatly expresses it, the only world that we know for sure is the one that we live in. Our only point of reference lies in this world. We still live in much the same world, neither in the paradise that Adam knew or the paradise that Jesus promises. This world will be swept away someday, and any chance to praise God from here will then be gone. And I think we do well to um, recall that uh, from time to time. The Bible does indeed encourage us to praise God as well as to pray to him in the midst of the troubles of this life. And that is what David is seeking to do here. But before we reach that point of optimism, 
we come to the third section, which is all about a torrent of tears from verse 6 to 7. And as anyone who's been through any kind of anguish of the intensity level in this psalm will tell you, the nights are always the worst. And there are various reasons for that. When we are um, in anguish, we are uh, weary. Um, It is draining. David says here at the beginning of verse 6, I am worn out from my groaning. And when we've been consumed by anguish during the day, we will find it so much more difficult to bear it at night because it's also dark at night and our fears grow in the dark. In the daytime, both literally and metaphorically, we find it easy to see things in perspective. But at night, we lose this ability. And David, in this section, appears in total despair. He is drowning in floods of tears because of the result of the opposition of his enemies. And we don't know in this psalm, as we did with Psalm 3 a few weeks ago, which John Phillips so helpfully preached on, if uh, this was opposition from his own family, as it was there with his own son turning against him. But opposition from family in general is a very common cause of the kind of turmoil that we are reading about here. The city of Kursk in Russia near the Ukrainian border has been in the news in recent weeks. And about 18 years ago, uh, I was privileged to be part of an international mission team that went out to Kursk to speak at a Bible conference for Christian medical students, nurses and doctors. And that conference was a remarkable couple of weeks. And um, please do pray for Russian Christians, as well as Ukrainians at this time. They will be really facing it. And even at that time, those Russian Christians were so grateful for the teaching ministry and practical help that we were able to give. But the honesty and openness that developed amongst the team itself during those two weeks was also quite exceptional. Most of the older members of the team shared their heartache over close family Uh, breakups and uh, strained relationships, sometimes to breaking point, that had caused much hurt. And towards the end of the two weeks, we were having to remind each other not only to take our Bibles to make sure that we were also well stocked up with handkerchiefs for going to the prayer meeting, because at all of the previous ones at some point, we all ended up in tears before the Lord, weeping with those who weep. And if we felt the sorrow of each other's hearts, how much more did the Lord feel the sorrow of everyone's heart? As the New Testament tells us, we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Hebrews 4.15 So it's not surprising then that in the Gospels we read of the Lord Jesus weeping also. And the most well-known occasion was at Bethany. I referred briefly to this earlier. I'm going to revisit it because I think it's very illuminating. After both his friends, Mary and Martha, in their grief at the loss of Lazarus, had at least implicitly, I think, 
blamed Jesus' tardiness in showing up as the reason that Lazarus had died. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And we read in John 11, verse 33, that when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had also come along with her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And of course, that was absolutely true. Jesus did love Lazarus and Martha and Mary. But he also knew, of course, that in a short while, he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So I'm not particularly convinced by the idea that Jesus' tears here were so much over the death of Lazarus as over the unbelief of Mary and Martha that Jesus could do anything about it. And I suggest this because the other occasion in the Gospels we specifically read of Jesus weeping is in Luke 19, 41. And it was clearly there over unbelief. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if only you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And if you are not a believer in Christ here this morning, he's saying exactly the same thing to you. If only you would know this day, the only thing that can bring you peace. Peace with God and peace with your own heart, and that is trusting in Christ as God's one and only Son. But these two occasions were not the only time that Jesus wept. And Hebrews, again, in chapter 5, tells us that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Jesus wept frequently because of all the unbelief that he saw around him and our unbelief today that would send him to the cross. And King David's words at the opening of this psalm, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, call to mind the atoning nature of the King of glory's suffering. The rebuke of God the Father did fall upon the Son, as we hear in another of David's psalms. Psalm 69, verse 20, speaking prophetically of Christ, says... Rebuke has broken my heart. I am full of heaviness. I looked for some to have pity on me, but there were none. And for comforters, there were none. So if, like David here in this psalm, you've cried so much you felt you would never stop, then Jesus, the perfect Son of God, understands, for he has also known what it is to experience profound sorrow and searing pain. But as we come into land, you'll be pleased to know that beyond the torrent of tears, we read about the certainty of deliverance in verses 8 to 10. 
As so often in the Psalms, there is an abrupt and complete change of tempo and tone in these last three verses. And David, as well as banishing all the thoughts of his enemies, appears to banish them literally as well when he cries out, away from me, all who do evil. And he bases this eventual vindication in three certainties here, in verse um, uh, 8 to 9. Yes, I'm willing to bet myself here and can hardly see the text. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord has accepted my prayer, and the Lord has heard my weeping at the end of uh, verse 8 there. Now, these are things, too, that we can also be confident about. The Lord hears our weeping, and he sees our tears, and he even stores them up in his archives in special bottles. He's abundant in mercy, and he loves to hear us when we come to him in prayer. He says to us, let me hear your voice. Your voice is sweet to me. Come, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And David's renewed confidence is so great that he says in the concluding verse that all his enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and themselves suffer the anguish that has previously overwhelmed him. And after his anguished cry at the beginning of the psalm, how long, O Lord, to which the implicit answer then seemed to be a very, very long time, he states in this verse that his foes will do a sudden U-turn and be put to shame. And my goodness me, how many U-turns we've seen unexpectedly this past week. Now, I have a long-standing Christian friend who for over 40 years has suffered the effects of a betrayal by another Christian in his family uh, who then sought to make a devastating situation worse by seeking to exploit his vulnerability relentlessly afterwards. Uh, my wife and I have often thought about the person who did that and just wonder what on earth happened because um, they appeared to be a, a true believer, but um, this astonishing behavior was uh, quite remarkable. Anyway, for many years, my friend and I have prayed, and he's prayed with other friends, for this exploitation to stop. But it continued just the same. And I have to confess that over this past year, it had gone on for so long that I personally had ceased to pray about it um, as regularly as I used to, and, and probably not much at all. And then a month ago, we were having lunch together, and he announced to my amazement that it had stopped suddenly and unexpectedly. And we rejoiced together over what was an extraordinary turn of events that the Lord had brought about. And I must also confess that I'm really glad I went on the bus because he ordered some champagne and we celebrated with that as well. And how good that will be in heaven now. Deliverance from our enemies, both from physical and uh, spiritual, uh, both physical and spiritual enemies, can come unexpectedly in this life, as I rejoice to say it has for my friend. But it may not. Just as the cup of suffering was not taken away from Jesus himself when he sweated drops of blood 
and so we shall be singing them out very shortly. So Christians may also, like him, have to endure things that we would never have wanted. However, ultimate deliverance for our enemies is absolutely certain for all those whose faith and trust is in Christ as their Savior and Lord. For the one who invites the weary and the burdened to come to him now has also promised that a day is coming when all anguish will be never felt again and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. So as we have looked at David's anguish in this psalm and seen him turn from anguish to confidence in the God who is able to deliver him. May it uh, spur us afresh this morning to commit ourselves to following this Christ who is the only one who is able to sustain us in the sorrows of this life and then to deliver us from all sorrow in his kingdom, which is surely coming for his name's sake. Amen. Let's just spend a a moment in quiet reflection on that, uh, silently. And uh, then I'll pray, and the band will then come up so that we can end our morning praising this marvelous, wonderful Savior that we worship. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that in the midst of every fiery trial that uh, we may face, that you are there with us in the fire as you were with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that you yourself uh, have borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Praise you, Lord. Amen.